Go ahead and open up your Bibles this week. We're going to be in Genesis chapter 8. Genesis 8, and we're going to look all the way through 9, chapter 9, verse 17. Um, but we're going to skip a couple places for reading. Let's uh, stand together for the reading of God's Word. Beginning in Genesis 8, verse 1, these are the words of God. Then God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the cattle that were with him in the ark, and God caused a wind to pass over the earth, and the water subsided. Skip down to verse 20. Then Noah built an altar to Yahweh and took of every clean animal and of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And Yahweh smelled the soothing aroma, and Yahweh said to himself, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intent of man's heart is evil from his youth. And I will never again strike down every living thing as I have done. While all the days of the earth remain, seed time and harvest, and cold and heat, and summer and winter, and day and night shall not cease. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And the fear of you and the terror of you will be on every beast of the earth and on every bird of the sky, with everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea, into your hand they are given. Every moving thing that is alive shall be food for you, as with the green plant I give all to you. However, flesh with its life, that is, its blood, you shall not eat. Surely I will require your lifeblood. From every living thing I will require it. And from every man, from each man's brother, I will require the life of man. Whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. For in the image of God he made man. As for you, be fruitful and multiply, swarm on the earth and multiply in it. Then God spoke to Noah and to his sons with him, saying, As for me, behold, I establish my covenant with you and with your seed after you. And with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the cattle, and every beast of the earth with you, of all that comes out of the ark, even every beast of the earth. Indeed, I establish my covenant with you, and all flesh shall never again be cut off by the water of the flood, and there shall never again be a flood to destroy the earth. Then God said, This is the sign of the covenant which I am giving to be between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all successive generations. I put my bow in the cloud, and it shall be for a sign of a covenant between me and the earth. And it will be when I bring a cloud over the earth that the bow will be seen in the cloud. And I will remember my covenant, which is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh, and never again shall the water become a flood to destroy all flesh. So the bow shall be in the cloud, and I will look upon it to remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. And God said to Noah, This is the sign of the covenant which I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. Let's pray. Our glorious Father and Lord, your word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. Give us grace to receive your truth in faith and love and strength to follow on the path you set before us. Through Jesus Christ, our King, and amen. Be seated. I want to begin our time this morning by reminding you of where it is we left off in our study of the Eden story. Two weeks ago, before Holy Week, we looked at Noah's call to build an ark, a giant vessel used in order to graciously preserve Noah's family and the animal world. We emphasize the fact that Noah is a type of Christ. We need to be able to make that connection. Noah is a type of Christ. Uh, The ark provided salvation for sinners, as does Christ. The ark itself was planned and designed by God just like Christ's salvation was before creation, planned and designed by the triune Godhead. The ark was a place of safety, and those who run into Christ, who run to Christ, are safe and secure too. The time to escape judgment by repentance was short for the rest of the world in Noah's day. There was a limit to the time for repentance, And Hebrews says that it's appointed for man to die once, then face judgment. Thus, 
The time, as it were, is short too. The time is short for unbelievers today, not because Jesus intends to come back at any second. He has not yet put his enemies under his feet, so he shall reign until that point. But the time is short because they only have a short life. So the time is short for them, and they need to consider that. The time of judgment was unexpected in Noah's day. It was unexpected, and it was unexpected in Christ's judgment against Israel in AD 70. And what Steve read there from 2 Peter 3 is, is all about that. The point here is to highlight the integral unity of Scripture's testimony. The same God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit who showed grace to Noah and brought salvation to the world is in fact the same God who gave us the gospel of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, the same God who sent the Holy Spirit proceeding from the Father and the Son to apply those benefits of Christ to us in real time. And that's why we partake of, of communion each week. We gather and we honor the Lord in the supper that He has given us. Uh, there are benefits that you receive when you partake of the bread and the wine. One of the main themes of the flood narrative is the preservation of the seed of the woman, the church. Uh, when you think of the preservation of, of history and the preservation of God, he, he preserves the seed of the woman, which was promised back in Genesis chapter 3. And the preservation of that seed is God's salvation of Noah and his family. God has determined to interact with creation, and he does so in terms of what we call the covenant. And in doing so, God saves the world. If you were to ask me, well, what is the meaning of history? The meaning of history is the unfolding of God's covenantal plan. All, all of life is in covenant with God, as we'll see here. So God interacts with creation through covenant, through his people, and he preserves the seed that was promised to Eve. Now, before digging into the text, I simply want to observe that the emphasis here in this particular section is on the covenant. At the end of this section, we have the covenant that God establishes with Noah, and it is very, very significant. And it is, in another perspectival look, at, it's a look at the overarching covenant of grace that spans from God's covenant there in the garden and the covenant of grace given when atonement was made so that they were clothed, all the way to Jesus, the height of the covenant of grace, the fulfillment of it all. And here in this text, Gary North calls it the ecological covenant, which is just a shorthand way of describing what the covenant really entailed. And it has to do with the world, with creation, with the animal kingdom, with birds. It has to do with everything that exists under this heading of creation, including man. Now, we're going to come back to this, but understanding covenant theology is vital to interpreting Scripture. It is an important lens to have when you read the Bible, so we need to understand covenant theology. Covenants, by definition, are solemn bonds administered by a sovereign ruler with attendant blessings for obedience and curses for disobedience. So I'll say that again. When you, what is a covenant? A covenant is a solemn bond. The solemn bond is administered and given by a sovereign ruler, in this case, Yahweh, the king of the world, and there are attendant blessings for obedience, just like Deuteronomy 28 spells out, and there are also, though, curses for disobedience, and Deuteronomy 28 shows us that as well. So when God manages history, when he seeks to accomplish what he seeks to accomplish in his providential plan, he does so through a vehicle, through a means, and that means is covenant. By binding creation and man together in this inseparable bond, sometimes involving life and death, you think of the story of, of Abraham when he falls asleep and then the animals are severed in half and God walks through that. When the animals were severed in half as a sacrifice of atonement, it was a symbolic picture of what would happen should anybody violate the covenant. You too will be sawn in half. It was that serious. Life and death was involved. And with Abraham, only God walks through these in this ceremony. He, he walks through. He takes the oath upon himself that he will accomplish what he says he will accomplish. Now, this inseparable bond is put in place in order to advance the plan of redemption. 
That is the big picture of Scripture. What is God doing with the world? He's redeeming it. He's saving it. He's doing something important with it. And the Noahic covenant, this ecological covenant, is no different. So let's just kind of work through the passage here, beginning there in Genesis 8. In verse 1, we are immediately confronted with the covenant. This is the reality. Then God remembered, notice that word, remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the cattle that were with him in the ark. When God remembers, it's not because he is forgetful. Okay, It's not because God is forgetful, but because he is, an in, he is intentional. God remembering is God being intentional. He is mindful of Noah and his purpose in building the ark. It's not like the world was under this deluge of water and it was you know, virtually destroyed. Um, and he just sort of kicked back and then, oh yeah, that's right, there's this guy on a boat that I told him to build. You know, he's there hanging out. No, that's not how we understand the God of the universe. He knows all things, and so he's not shocked by anything. But he is mindful of Noah. And when the Bible says that God remembers something, the Bible is saying that God intends to act. When God remembers, watch out. Watch out. He is acting. It's a covenantal word. He is choosing to act in a powerful way based on covenant. Did Noah, kind of a question to ponder, did Noah and his family doubt the faithfulness of Yahweh? Now, you could ask, have you ever doubted the faithfulness of God? Maybe you've never said it out loud, but do you ever find yourself doubting God's faithfulness, especially when, like a bug, you're being squashed by his sovereign boot? I don't think Noah did. Could they have wrestled in their faith with God while sitting in the, in the ark for a year in utter darkness? Perhaps. Maybe. But either way, when God remembers, God moves to action. And here, God causes wind to pass over the earth and for the water to start to subside. Remember, the water, the flood, had covered all of the tallest mountains. It covered everything. And now it's going to subside. And it's important to note that the fountains of the deep and the floodgates of the sky were closed and the cataclysmic forces of God's wrath subsided. So this isn't just God set nature into motion and he sort of leaves it alone. It's God moving every ounce of water to tell it where to go all the time. Meticulous sovereignty. So the the forces of God's wrath subside the volcanic power and forcefulness of this worldwide event would have rearranged the face of the earth, presumably breaking up Pangaea, if it's true that there was one continent and then it kind of exploded. That's sort of the position of Christians um, with with that. Um, A mini ice age afterwards, presumably in some parts of the world, um, there seems to be the case. And that doesn't pose a problem for Christians. Um, New mountains were probably established. The creation of the beauty of the Grand Canyon happening in a cataclysmic moment. If you've learned anything from Mount St. Helens, we know that things that happen in that that power, that force, the earth can shift very quickly. Uh, There was a restructuring of the earth's crust with geological and tectonic manipulation. A lot happened here in the flood. The post-Diluvian world, the post-flood world, would be a new creation world. That's how we read the text. And it was preparing the way for the final new heavens and new earth that Jesus himself would issue. But the land, we've said this before, the land is for man. That is the, uh, he didn't create us with gills to be underwater all the time. He created us with lungs to breathe air on the land. And that's, that's the purpose of the land. It's for man to cultivate. So in verse 4, we know the ark rested somewhere in the mountains of Ararat. People debate, where is it today? Is there anything left today? You know, take that for what you will. But the water decreased, and, and it took some time, though. The rest of the passage explains what happened. It took a few months for the water to dissipate. At one point, Noah opened the window, that's in verse 6, and he sent out a raven. Um, a raven is an unclean bird in God's economy. That's in verse 7. And why an unclean bird first? If you've ever asked that question, 
Now's a good time to, to know. Why an unclean bird first? Well, because the land would be full of dead corpses, man and animal, and that's what ravens eat. The unclean goes first to clean it up, um, and that's somewhat a conjecture, but I think it's a reasonable, a, a reasonable uh, conclusion. So the un, unclean world needed to be cleansed. Afterwards, in verse 8, the dove is sent out, and the dove is a clean animal that was symbolic of the Holy Spirit's work in the new creation. So the dove is sent out. The dove found nowhere to land, in verse 9, hovering over the waters. You remember that from Genesis chapter 1. The dove hovering over the waters with like a spirit, like the Spirit, the Holy Spirit. And it came back. There was nowhere to go. After another seven days, the dove is sent back out. That's in verse 10. And this time, though, it comes back with an olive leaf, verse 11. The olive is an important image of Eden, God's sanctuary, God's creative power. Um, but yet, it wasn't time. And Noah, I think Noah at this point knew it was time for the dove to bring back an, an olive leaf is kind of significant. Like, oh, okay, the water is dissipating. It is going away. But Noah waits another seven days. He sends out the dove once again in verse 12. This time it doesn't come back. The pattern of seven here indicates that this is a Sabbath operation. It's a Sabbath recreation. The land was ready for habitation, so God urges Noah to leave the ark. That's in verse 15 and 16. Recall that Noah was inside the ark on the top of a mountain and uh, with, with not a whole lot of uh, windows to look through. He wouldn't have been able to see much, so he had to trust Yahweh's guidance. Thus, everyone, and it's highlighted here, everyone, animals included, leave the ark and they begin immediately to multiply, multiply on the face of the earth. That's verses 17, 18, and 19. So the kinds of animals, we talked about it a couple weeks ago, the kinds then leave and at some point, they propagate, and they propagate quickly, as did Noah's family. But what does Noah do first? What is the first thing that Noah does? Verse 20 tells us, he builds an altar to Yahweh in order to worship God. When God saves and delivers you, you respond in worship and adoration. That's the pattern. When God delivers you and saves you, you respond in worship and and adoration. We, we, get, we, we gather on the Lord's day like this, and when we gather, we should have adoration in our hearts. We should have worship in our hearts. We should not have envy and covetousness. That's why we confess our sins together. We need to be purged. We need to be cleansed. We confess it, and we trust that in the Bible, there is a promise that you can be forgiven. Indeed, you are forgiven in Christ. So when Christ delivers you, you ought to be joyful and grateful. Uh, there's nothing more miserable than a Christian who's been given everything, that is Christ, and who lives his life or her life in constant uh, self-pity or constant uh, you know, frustration as though Christ hasn't given you everything you need for life and doctrine. So Christians, we, we worship together with adoration. We celebrate the glorious deliverance. And Noah does just that. He brings every clean animal and every clean bird offering them as a burnt offering. Now, burnt offerings in Scripture signified uh, trust, signified faith, signified uh, dependence on Yahweh and His provision. Burnt offerings, you can see this in the first few chapters of Leviticus, burnt offerings served as an ascension offering. It was an ascension offering, and it symbolized the worshiper ascending to the heavenly sanctuary. Uh, and that's why it's significant when we think of in terms of ascending to the heavens, when the church gathers and worships, we, we ascend to the heavenly sanctuary, and that's what the burnt offering signified. Atonement had already been made in the flood, but now it was time for rejoicing. The atonement is over, they were delivered, now it's time to rejoice. And the offering here demonstrated gratitude. It demonstrated humility and thankfulness. Note that the text says every clean animal and bird all right, they were all sacrificed, these clean animals and birds that were set aside. Remember, Noah took seven of every clean animal on the ark. Did those animals uh, during that year have reproductive function and did they have babies that came out of the ark? Maybe. 
But I'll tell you this, with this type of sacrifice, it was a bloodbath. It was a lot. Either way, regarding whether or not there were animals propagated on the ark, probably, it was a blood sacrifice. It was a massive amount of blood sacrifice. And this is because life comes from death. That is the Christian pattern. Life comes from death, not life from life, which is pagan orientation. Not life from life, when you think of the, the, the Aztecs and sacrificial cultist behavior and witchcraft and some of the New Age occultist stuff. Um, life comes from death. Death starts. That's why in Christ we have to die. We die in him and are raised with him. So the blood, we know from Scripture, is the life. He highlights it here. Hebrews says the same thing. The blood is the life. When the blood is shed, when the animal is, when the throat is cut, the blood is poured out, the animal is then divvied up and sacrificed on the altar as God prescribed, the life is gone and thus death occurs. It's an, a blood atonement. And death and resurrection, those concepts are clearly represented in this trans- transaction. Um, Adam, or, well, Adam is, this, Adam is in the same situation as Noah, needing that atonement. But here is Noah, who is essentially who has died, and then Noah is raised with his family through the ark. So the whole world was polluted, and bloodshed, the bloodshed required was immense, and that points us to Christ himself. Now, the text says that Yahweh smelled the soothing aroma, verse 21, and that's how God feasts on the sacrifice. For God to smell, obviously we're ascribing anthropological, anthropomorphic language, that's the word, it's a mouthful, anthropomorphic language to God to describe how God smells, God processes and, and is pleased by the sacrifice. And we too must be a pleasing aroma, and in Christ we are. And then we have the covenant being initiated as Yahweh says to himself, I will never again curse the ground because of man. Note that promise. I will never again curse the ground because of man. For the intent of man's heart is evil from his youth. And I will never again strike down every living thing as I have done. So the sacrifice of of Noah here is acceptable. God's judgment would take on a different form in the future. And nature, though, creation, would not mediate the curse in this way ever again. God promised to never flood the earth ever again. He would not do that to creation. And another reason God covenants not to destroy the world in this way is because man's evil comes from the heart, specifically as a youth, from his youth on up. That's why Paul tells Timothy to flee youthful lusts. There's something about youthful vigor that without self-government becomes a major, major problem. So you young men here, you young teenage men, you need to listen carefully. Flee youthful lusts. You have a lot of energy. You're learning a lot. You're exploring the world. You're seeing things. Eventually, you're going to have a family, and you have to be self-disciplined to take on and carry on what God has given you. But longevity of life has diminished after the flood, and thus man's evil would be, wouldn't be as proliferate as it once was. Total destruction is the hallmark of the flood. It's emphasized in the text, God destroyed everything. All the people living on the earth, all the animals that were not on the ark, everything was destroyed. The covenant here, Yahweh says, no more. I won't do that again. The other reason for God doing this is found in verse 22, which if you're looking for a core proof text against the climate change enthusiasts, verse 22 is a good one to go to. The seasons of life will remain. That's the promise in the covenant with Noah. The seasons of life will remain. The weather will fluctuate as the weather always does. (laughs) Do you believe in climate change? Well, it was 80 one day and 50 the next. Yeah, it changed. You know, and then they look at you like, well, you don't know what you're talking about. Well, here we are. But the pattern of of God's days will be perpetual, meaning that God intends for there to be day and night in perpetuity. It's meant to go on forever until the end of history, 
when we see the vision in Revelation where there's no sun, there's no moon. The, the light of God's glory illuminates the new heavens and new earth. So Yahweh controls the environment. That's one of the lessons here. Not man. Yahweh controls it, not man. God mercifully creates this beautiful environment for man. Would man be thankful, though? Look at chapter 9. In chapter 9, God reestablishes the dominion mandate to be fruitful and multiply. That is what we do. We have families, and our families have families, and then the kids have kids, and they have families, and, and we honor the Lord in that as He wills. He is in control of the womb in that regard. And that's in verse 1. So the same thing that was told to Adam is told to Noah and his family again. But something changes here. The fear and terror of man will strike every animal, bird, and fish. Verse 2. Animals, we talked about that a couple weeks ago, but animals will be subject to man's stewardship and dominion in a new way. They will fear man. Now, presumably before this, the animals didn't really have a fearsome... Uh, problem with man, God strikes them well with this in this covenant that they are to fear man, they are to submit to man, and man is not to exploit the animals, and we talked about that. God loves animals, and, and the Proverbs tells us that uh, we should regard our animals, we should regard them, um, and do things on his terms, on God's terms. But also in verse 3, God clarifies what man shall be permitted to eat, Presumably, based on this text in Genesis, man was at least vegetarian in the garden as death was not present until after Adam's sin. That's been a hotly contested point. But here it's obvious God makes certain provisions. He makes more provisions in Leviticus later on. But the main issue that the council in Acts tells us the same thing, here we're not to consume blood. God says not to do it. Blood is not to be consumed. That's verses 2 through 4. We also have, as part of God's covenant with Noah, the biblical doctrine of capital punishment. And notice I said the biblical doctrine of capital punishment. Uh, hotly debated, but the Bible does prescribe it. Animals that, are, animals that uh, kill, you think of the goring ox in the book of Exodus, animals that kill are to be killed. God prescribes that here. Men who murder must be put to death. That's verses 5 and 6. So God institutes this for the animal world, and he institutes it for humans. Now, blood is what signifies life. So to shed blood is to unlawfully cause death. And since man is made in the image of God, the murderer must be extinguished and expunged from the land. That's why, as abolitionists, we are quite comfortable with saying, what about cases of rape? Well, then the death penalty should apply to the father, not the child. It's very, very simple. When we, set, when we know that at the moment of fertilization, we have the image of God present, and that's why our preborn neighbors should be rescued and should be uh, preserved and should be given equal just rights. The dominion mandate is reaffirmed again in verse 7, and then in verse 8 and the following, the covenant terms and conditions are issued. God will covenant with Noah and his seed, with the animals, and with all of creation. That's verses 9 through 11. The world won't be flooded again in this sort of judgment. God cares about what happens here on earth, but he also has a different plan at this point, and not because God changed his mind. God is perfectly impassable. Uh, he simply interacts with the creation. And, and kids, you'll, you'll learn here that God, as a sign of his covenant, he puts the rainbow in the clouds. So when the rainbow shows up, it is not a, si a sign to get all arrogant, okay? Pride, brace yourselves, June is coming. <laughs> Keep re rehearsing that. Um, that's not what that's for. That is God's war bow. It's a war bow. It shows up in Ezekiel, I believe. It's either Jeremiah or Ezekiel. Uh, Ezekiel. And then it shows up in Revelation again. It's God's war bow. It's a sign. And he hangs it in the clouds as a sign of him not judging the world in this manner ever again. So when you see a rainbow, we are tempted to want to look for gold, but we should look to Yahweh first and foremost and thank the Lord Jesus that he is sovereign. 
So notice that it's not that we see the sign and feel a certain way. It's not, and we can, and we see the rainbow, and we ought to be reminded, ah, yes, Noah, flood, God is good. We should be thinking that. But actually, it's not that we see the sign, but that God sees it. He puts it in the clouds, and he sees it as a memorial of his sovereign covenantal plans, and that's highlighted in verse 15. So the covenant is everlasting here, and it's between God and all of creation. Verse 16. So God speaks in verse 17 to Noah, and he affirms that the covenantal arrangement is now in place. From that moment on, God takes it upon himself to not judge man in, or animals in this way ever again. So, how shall we then live? The Dominion Covenant, issued in Genesis chapter 2, we have it in chapter 1 and 2, and then reissued for Adam and Eve, and then it's reissued here. The Dominion Covenant, to be fruitful and multiply, to work and keep the world, is the hallmark of covenantal history. It is the hallmark of covenantal history. Its perpetuity is not in question when Adam failed the test in the covenant of life. It's not, God says to Adam and Eve, be fruitful, multiply, work and keep. Oh, you sinned. Oh, I guess we'll scrap that plan. That's how some Christians read, read it. In fact, there's a lot of, even in the Reformed world, a, a, a problem with this idea of the Dominion Covenant even being applicable today. But it is applicable today because it is the hallmark of covenantal history. And, and God upheld that call to Adam and Eve despite their sin. And he upholds it here with Noah as well. Rather than, rather than scrapping it, the covenant of grace... The covenant of grace God issues supplants not the calling of dominion, but the sin that inhibits it. Sin is the problem, not the calling of God. And we have to remember that. Uh, let me say it this way. Once Adam failed the first covenant, the covenant of, of grace redeems him so that he has the ability to glorify God and to carry out the dominion mandate. And that's why it's reinforced with Noah. God wants humans to be fruitful, to multiply, to take dominion, to be stewards over creation, to work and keep, develop, cultivate. He wants us to do all of that. And that does not change with Christ. And it is difficult. This task is difficult. Um, we have sin in the world. Um, sometimes a, a wife struggles to be pregnant. Sometimes sin causes and we live in this in this world that christ is fixing but sometimes you have a child who doesn't make it during gestation or even after um, but it is it is a difficult task god didn't say it was going to be easy but it is it is call it is our calling and it's going to be challenging but we also know by god's grace it can be accomplished in the lord's power and all of us have to be comfortable with what, what God has given us or what God hasn't given us because we can look at someone else and say, you know, I'm, I'm struggling to, to get pregnant, but they have, you know, 75 children. Or so it seems in that state of despair that it's just that many, but I have none. And we can start to, we can wrestle with that and we can be envious and we could covet what other people have, but we shouldn't. We need to... We need to say like Job, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord, no matter what situation you're in. So unlike Adam, Noah wasn't fashioned directly by God's hand. But like Adam, Noah was a progenitor of the human race. Noah is not the head of the human race. Adam is. But Noah brings forth a new creation thanks to God's work. The ecological covenant found here is for all of creation. This is a special covenant of God's redeeming grace, but it is a common covenant. Every unbeliever benefits from this covenant. Every unbeliever that's on the, in, on the face of the world right now, they're on earth, they're living their lives on all, all across the globe, they are beneficiaries of this. Unbelievers live in God's world, breathing God's air, eating God's food. It's all his, and they're living on borrowed time. They do so because God has intervened in history. They are inexorable beneficiaries of God's promise to never flood the earth again. And trust me, there are times, especially in the month of June, where I wonder, 
Maybe a regional flood will do it. <laughs> when, what will it take to wake us up and get us out of this stupor of sin and, and confusion and, and such, is my, such are my prayers sometimes. But they're beneficiaries. They don't always acknowledge this. They think that they brought themselves here. And they go so far to not only not acknowledge this covenant and how they live in God's world, they go so far as to take the colors of the rainbow and make it a symbol of pride. That's pretty, uh, pretty arrogant, to take what God has given and to blaspheme it <laughs> in that way. Nevertheless, the unbeliever is in covenant with God, like it or not. They are in Adam. And they are also in the Noahic covenant. They live in the overlapping grace of God's common and natural as well as God's specific and special redeeming grace. Um, they're on God's world living and breathing and eating and participating in God's economy. They just don't worship him. And that's what we try to get them to do. Now remember, the wicked perished in the flood. That's the story of the flood. The wicked perished in the flood which was simultaneously an act of God's special and specific grace. So simultaneously, you had God judging the world and putting to death the evildoer, while in that same moment, rescuing humanity. Now, the story of Noah and the flood is about several things. There are a lot of themes here, but it's about several things. It's about creation and decreation. God created the world, and now he's undoing Genesis 1 and, and, and chapter 2. So he undoes it by, remember in Genesis 1, there's emphasis um, where the land comes up out of the water. There's this beautiful, and then th this is good, right? This is good. And then he fills, it, fills the land, fills the water, fills the air, puts man there on day six with the beasts. Um, and that's a good thing. Well, now what does God do? There's no land. The land's taken away. It's an undoing of Genesis 1. The, that creation order has been poisoned. God will swallow the land in water, the fountains of the deep swallowing it up, and he's going to then redo it again. And that's the new creation pattern. Uh, and we'll come to that with Christ in, in a minute. Now, one of the central features of God's covenant with Noah and creation here is that it is a fulfillment of God's covenant with the Aretz, that is the land, the place of land, the organized space that God gave. This is a covenant with the actual soil, with the world, with the water, with the clouds, with the trees. He covenants with creation. And that land God created for man to dwell upon, and yet man had stained it with murder and blood. So God washes it clean, a symbol of baptism, by flooding and cleaning the earth. But God's purpose for the earth remains. The land must emerge from the water. The earth mustn't be totally annihilated. Instead, God must establish it for man and the task of dominion. Again, climate change is a hoax. Say it with me. Climate change is a hoax. <laughs> okay, we're on the same page. That, too, is on the list of offenses in our culture. That is a sin to say. So say it, sin, sin boldly, as Luther advised us. <laughs> Now, I mentioned earlier that the flood narrative and God's decision to host Noah and his family aboard the ark is the preservation of the seed of the woman who would crush the serpent's head. That theme is still here. This preservation gets us to Christ, who was in the loins of Noah. Christ would eventually come, so we have to preserve humanity, and that's what God does in showing grace to Noah. Furthermore, as mentioned earlier, the death and resurrection motif is present in the story. Think about Noah and his circumstances. Noah was in the very dark ark, surrounded by death. Surrounded by death. Death outside, chaos outside, total judgment outside. Because outside Christ, all of that is going on. But he's in an ark with no light other than maybe some candles that they you know put together but noah when noah emerges from the ark he experiences the power of resurrection a foretaste of the final resurrection of of the body he experiences the power of resurrection a renewal a new birth of sorts as god's grace 
makes him tread upon the once covered with water land world. So it's like this burial and then this resurrection. It's a type of that. It points us to Christ. So the land must be reborn because God's glory is to cover the land as the waters cover the sea. That's what Habakkuk tells us. We need to believe it. Now, as James Jordan pointed out, um, this is an interesting observation, but the flood is also a circumcision of the first creation so that the flesh that is cut off, that language of flesh being cut off, that is the wicked humanity, they will be buried in judgment only to let the seed of man be restored by resurrection power. So the cutting off the, of the flesh in circumcision is obviously, an, it's an overtone, it's a connotation of the Abrahamic covenant that would come later when God would circumcise his, his people. And if you've, not, if you've wondered why God would do such a thing with the eight-year-old boys after they were born and and those who were already born and came into the covenant had to be circumcised, the, the males. Circumcision was a commitment to Yahweh's covenant faithfulness over man's seed or children. This language of seed. So that's what, um, in, in children, you are the seed, the offshoot of your parents. Um, that language of seed is present in the issue of circumcision. God was to be sovereign over the future generations, and that's why they took on this sign. And it, if, if man is unfaithful, if man does not obey God, he too will be cut off, just like the foreskin. That's why circumcision is significant in the Old Testament. Finally, in terms of what the flood story means, we can also see Noah's emergence from the ark as symbolizing a new birth. Kind of already hinted to it. Remember that Eve was created out of the side of Adam. Eve was created out of the side of Adam, which was later sealed and sewn back together. Adam had to undergo some sort of surgery there. Now, Noah, we're told, emerges from the side of the ark, which had been sealed up. Same language. The side of the ark had been sealed up, and then it is unsealed, and the ark is like a womb in which contained the seed of the future of creation. So when men are reborn, they're brought into the covenant through baptism, they now have a future. They are born by water and blood, word and spirit from the side of Christ and the cross. The side of Adam and Eve, the side of the ark of Noah, and Jesus on the cross. They puncture his side, blood and water comes out. That is word and spirit. That is covenant language. That's how the church is born, born by the side now, we need to see the establishment of God's covenants as being God's gracious establishment of order, of justice, and love. Let's talk about love for a second. Covenants, God's covenants are always, always a demonstration of God's interposing love. When God acts, when God remembers, when he moves, when he does that, it is always, every single time, an act of love. If you've ever had an unbeliever say, boy, that, that flood story really bothers me. I mean, God killed a lot of people. Yeah, he did. And it was loving. That should be your response. It was loving. Why? Well, when God interacts and interposes in the world through covenant, it is interposing love, as I'm arguing. But this is not to say that God's justice is absent. It's not like we can say, charge God with injustice. That's, Paul deals with that in Romans. We can't say, well, God is unjust for doing this. No, we say God is just, and to say that God is just is to also say that he is love. All right? So to the contrary of justice being absent, God's love is his justice. God's love is his justice, and his justice is his love. And that is the attributes of God as they pertain to himself are an all-encompassing whole. And God himself, he, he reveals himself in creation. And when he does that, those attributes can be distinguished, but they can never be separated. This is why understanding the doctrine of God and the aseity of God uh, and the simplicity, the doctrine of divine simplicity, why we don't break those up. As if like a, the Father is more like wrath and the Son is sort of loving and the Spirit is the justice part. 
No, it's an all-encompassing whole of who God is in and of himself, in and of his nature. But we distinguish it, love and justice, and the Bible does, but they're not like one part, like 10% of God is justice, another 10% is love, another 10% is grace, grace and all of that. None of that is true. God is all of those things as a whole. Those are his attributes. Now, Boving puts it this way. He said, God is love indeed, but this glorious confession comes into its own only when love in the divine being is understood as being a holy love in perfect harmony with justice. There is room for the grace of God only if the justice of God is first fully established. So love itself is defined in terms of God's law, God's justice, which is why Paul says that love is the fulfillment of the law in Romans chapter 13, verse 10. The law of God, which demonstrates the justice of God, upholds that which is loving. Do not ever let an unbeliever that you're engaging with try to define love apart from the law of God. They will try... Love is love. Love is freedom. Love is tolerance. Real quickly, they won't tolerate you. But they'll try to redefine it apart from the justice of God, and you cannot do it. Remember, they're breathing God's air. They're eating God's food. They're enjoying God's image on their own terms, not God's, but that's what they're doing. And so... Um, it, God's law upholds which is loving, that which is loving, and that which is unloving. And it tells us that which is gracious and that which is ungracious. But as it pertains to the flood, we can see that the act itself was an act of justice and of love. It was both of those things. Bavink says again, If the history of the world clearly teaches us anything, it is this, that God has a quarrel with his creature. God has a quarrel with his creature. And that's exactly what we have in the flood story. God has a quarrel with his creature. Whatever the sinful creation conjures up, note that word sinful, whatever the sinful creation, speaking of man, conjures up, will always, apart from God's interposing grace, go against God. When you're born in iniquity and sin, and you are estranged from the covenant, you are in Adam and you're not in Christ, the only thing you can do, as we said earlier in our prayer of confession, is sin. That's all you know to do. You're compelled to sin. You want to sin. You love lusting. You love gossip. You love slander. You, you, you love all of these things that God hates. So, of course, God has a quarrel with man. Man in his sin will always separate himself to the best of his ability from God. He will, like Jonah, try to run in the opposite direction, as if God isn't there too. He will quarrel with God. He will kick against God. He will separate from God. And even in his sin, man will always desire redemption. Man will always desire redemption. Where will he find it? I mean, I always think about this. What were the people doing when, at some point, they looked around and said, yeah, maybe this flood thing is happening. This doesn't seem to stop. I mean, 40 days of a deluge, that's a big deal. Did they look around and say, hmm, you know, the guy who built that boat, the ark in the middle of the desert, I always thought he was crazy. He was onto something. Did they experience guilt and shame in that moment? Was it enough to repent and, and, and no? But I always wonder and speculate what happened when that was going on. But that's what men do. They will always desire redemption, but they want it on their terms. Where will man find it? In building a tower? We're coming to that in Genesis 11. Will that be the redemption? Man redeems himself by becoming a god? No. Sinners do not want Christ's redemption because sinners want their sin. Redemption, then, is achieved on their own terms. And yet, God intervenes and saves man. That's the beauty that's what the covenant really is. God saves sinners. That's the heart of the gospel message. God saves sinners, of which you and I are the first and foremost. He sends his son to us. And what do we do? We lay traps for him. We malign him. We ridicule him. We spit on him. We flog him. We throw a crown of thorns on his head. We curse him. We besmirch him. We lie about him. 
We frame him, we falsely charge him, and we then beat him and murder him. That's what sinners do. But what is the cross? It is the love and justice of God. Christ on the cross is your death, and Christ out of the tomb is your resurrection. That is the gospel answer. This is the new covenant established in Christ's blood. You de- your, your sins deserve punishment, and you, the sinner, deserve death. But Christ died for you. That is justice. He is both just and the justifier of the one who believes in Christ, Paul tells us in Romans. And this is love, too. It is love, too. It is God stooping low to rescue people, to circumcise their hearts, to give them a new birth, to raise them in the mother church, establish the work of their hands, and putting them in the world to be fruitful and multiply. That is love, and that is justice. The covenants all descend on Christ's shoulders, for he carries the government of all things on them. So look to the covenant, friends. Look to the covenant, which is to say, look to Christ. Look to Christ, and lo, he is interposing love himself. Praise be to God. Let's pray. Father, we glorify you this morning. We gather as your people, humbled by the beauty of what the cross really, really means as we think about this in this Easter resurrection season. As we look to your word and find that you are faithful to the covenant and your commitment to the covenant surely is more than ours because oftentimes we are fickle, fake. Oftentimes we are insecure. Oftentimes we look to please man instead of pleasing you. We're all guilty to some degree or another, but we confess that to you. And we ask that you would establish us in this covenant. Help us to defend the faith that was given in a world where sin wants to run rampant. We ask that you would help us to to, uh, be committed to your gospel work in the world. To not be shy, but to be bold and courageous. Give us the power of your spirit afresh, we ask. And we boldly come to you in the name of Christ who sits on the throne in heaven, interposing for us day in and day out.